Looking to improve your employee retention? Start by perfecting your onboarding and training experience for new hires. Check out Trainual to see how they can help you scale your growth and make onboarding easier and more efficient than ever. Check out the link in the show description or on the Manufacturing Culture Podcast partner page at manufacturingculturepodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to the Manufacturing Culture Podcast, where we explore company culture in the fascinating world of manufacturing. I'm your host, Jim Mayer, and this week we have a true manufacturing maverick on the show, Jason Ray, the CEO and co-founder of Paperless Parts. As a former supply and logistics officer in the United States Navy, Jason saw firsthand the critical importance of effective sourcing and manufacturing. He recognized that job shops and contract manufacturers needed a better way to quote accurately, communicate seamlessly, and grow their business. So he founded Paperless Parts, the innovative platform that is transforming the way manufacturers do business. But Jason is no ordinary CEO. He's a trailblazer, a thought leader, and a true innovator in the manufacturing industry. His groundbreaking approach to manufacturing has won him accolades from industry experts and government organizations alike. In this episode, we'll dive into Jason's journey, exploring his days in the Navy, his entrepreneurial spirit, and his vision for the future of manufacturing. We'll also discuss the challenges he's faced, the lessons he's learned, and the innovations he's brought to the industry. So if you're ready to hear from one of the most exciting voices in manufacturing today, don't miss this episode. Join us as we sit down with Jason Ray, the CEO and co-founder of Paperless Parts, and discover the passion, the innovation, and the drive that's transforming the world of manufacturing. Sit back, relax, and let's talk about the culture of manufacturing. Hey, hey, Jason, welcome to the show. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, my pleasure completely. Uh, thanks for uh, taking some time out of your busy schedule. Um, and joining us. This is going to be a lot of fun today. And uh, just to give a little bit more color on on Jason and my background, and, and this is something I like to do, Jason, at the start of every episode, uh, connect the dots so people understand how we've met. Uh, when I was working for the National Tooling and Machining Association, uh, Jason uh, reached out to me and wanted to be a part of the organization. He wanted to, to support uh, manufacturers, machine shops, um, and, and wanted to figure out how we could make that happen. Uh, so we met in person, I think, uh, like we were talking about before the recording, uh, met in person at East Tech in 2019. Is that right, Jason? I think so. I think that was the first time. And then at several other NTMA events and conferences throughout the years, uh, we definitely had the pleasure. It's been awesome. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And and uh, one thing that I do, uh, you know, I mentioned to you earlier and, and we've talked about, uh, I talk about with, with people I meet and uh, as I'm talking to them about Paperless Parts' journey, uh, you guys have grown like crazy. Um, you, when I first came to your office, it was in the basement of a really old historic building in, in Boston and, and you guys have grown like wildfire. Talk to us about where you are now, size-wise, uh, your your recent move before we get into the talk about culture. 
Oh uh, yeah, absolutely, Jim. We've been we've been so lucky. Um, over the past six years, the company has has really grown tremendously. But it really, you know, we didn't we didn't start uh, scaling up until probably right around 2020, 2021. So today we are 150 people. We're still in downtown Boston. Um, we're right next to Faneuil Hall, which is a beautiful place to be. Um, super fortunate. We got very lucky with the office space that we have. Um, we're definitely an in-office culture. One, our customers are an in-office culture. You know, it's not like yeah. you can run your CNC machine from home. Um, <laughs> so I, I think I just think it's really important, and especially if we're going to do the innovative things and um, make sure that we're communicating, collaborating, working well together. It's just it's so important to see people every day and work with them. So um, I'm grateful that we have the opportunity to be in, in such a nice area. It's, I get to walk to work every day, which is just incredible. That's cool. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's awesome. So lots of luck over the past few years, and uh, we're still at it. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. Uh, so that's a great segue uh, into the the cultural journey of Paperless Parts. Talk to us. Where where were you when you first founded the company as far as your culture? Uh, where are you now? And, and ultimately, where do you want to get the culture at, at Paperless Parts? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think it's a, it's a really awesome question. Um, in my paperless parts, is the only company I've ever worked for. I was in the United States Navy before this. And so I can give you my perspective on our company, but you know, everybody should take it with a grain of salt. So <laughs> paperless parts, very, very gritty, brute force company in the early days. So name it. You had to do it. We would get it done. Work work all night. Sleep in the office. You name it. We were doing it. Sure. And we did a lot of things. Um, probably for the first several years of the company that just, just don't scale at all. You know, it's like total dogpiling heroics to try to make sure that we're getting customers taken care of. We're solving problems. You know, we're closing deals and then realizing we needed to write more software, build more code to actually support those customers. You know, a lot, yeah. of, a lot of heroics to just try to survive the first few years. And I know our customers do that too. You know, they're making parts on the weekends. They're getting in their pickup truck and they're going and picking up metals because they need the metals to make the parts overnight. Yeah. You know, they, they do a lot of heroics to make sure they're taking care of their customers. So I feel like I can, I can really empathize and I have such an enormous amount of respect for that. And then as, as the company grows and as we grew, we started to, we started to kind of straddle this line of, you know, we're, we have more senior people. We're starting to, starting to build little processes here and there, but still a lot of dogpiling, still very much brute force. And now where we are is we're building processes that scale. And so it's, we're, you know, zero, zero to one, you know, that innovation phase is very brute forced. It's very, um, it's very ugly and messy. Yeah. And then as you start to grow up as a company, you, you work to build process and you go from brute force to process because you're trying to get that well-oiled machine together. And then I think where, where I would love to get company too is to a point where, you know, we're, we are a unit. We have, we've achieved that flow state where, the things we do are very natural. It's not, you know, it is not a make it up on the fly, uh, figure it out. I mean, I know we're still going to have some of those, but it just won't be the majority of what we do. 
And I, I think that's like a natural evolution as a company. Now, the culture that aligns with those three stages, the brute force, the create the process, the run the process, you kind of have this like very gritty message to Garcia, hell or high water type approach mm -hmm. in the early days. And then as you're building the processes, you have a much more deliberate, intentional approach. You know, we got to figure out how to set this process up. We got to hold people accountable for running the process that way. We've got to constantly be doing retrospectives and fixing it. And then once we're fully at scale, I expect that the culture will be a lot more around, you know, laser guided execution. Oh, so I like it. That that's when it, when it comes back to culture and, and I was thinking about this cause I, I had your questions this morning and I was looking over them. You know, in the early days, we had these these principles of like methods to Garcia, no excuses, very militaristic, hard-nosed, get-it-done type messaging mm -hmm. to our teams. And then, you know, one of the more significant changes that we've made over the years was we said, okay, we have to step back. Like we had, I think we had six or seven of these, you know, core principles with a lot of bullet points underneath them. And we said, okay, as this company scales, we got to make sure that as people read these, they're not interpreting them the wrong way. You know, like message to Garcia is this whole story about message, taking a message to Garcia. You know, we, we meant it as like, a you know, figure it out, do your homework, do, do the job to get it done. But some people were interpreting that as like, don't ask questions. It's not acceptable. To it's not okay to not know how to do something. Yeah. And, and as we continue to dig into our culture and we survey our employees at least once, if not twice a year, but as we started to dig in, we realized we needed something new and we needed something that was really clearly articulated and could be very easily defined each level of the company. Because as you start, you know, it's very flat organization when you have 10 people, mm -hmm. everybody's working together to try to get it done that 150 people I have frontline individual contributors, I have frontline managers, I have directors, I have VPs, I have senior vice presidents, I've got chief marketing officer, chief revenue officer. Like you have, it starts to become a much more hierarchical organization and people need to understand what, what do these core values mean for me as an individual contributor? And what do these core values mean for me as a mid-level manager and what do these mean for me as a senior executive so we yep. took that approach and we built out a grid and we came up with some core values three core values and really that that then got interpreted to each level of the company so that that's how our company has scaled and that's really that that has been a very important backbone for for our business that's that's really neat. Tell us more about uh, the the three core values, and if you don't mind sharing them, what what are they? Well, it's we are intentional, and that basically means that we're committed, we're focused, we're deliberate in the work that we undertake, that we plan ahead, we have clear ownership, we prioritize, we're refining often to ensure our delivery of the best possible outcome. That's that's we're intentional. Mm -hmm. and, and what we mean there, and, and one of the things that my co-founder, Jay Jacobs, always says is that the most intentional person in any situation wins. Mm -hmm. So being really intentional means showing up with a plan. It means 
thinking ahead. It means writing your notes down. It means taking notes during conversations. It, it's, it's that level of intentionality that's really important. So that's the first one. Okay. The second one is we're persistent. So we used to have gritty, we had resilient, we had different words. I felt like persistent was, was the right flavor for the company. It basically means that we're never done in our quest to improve and grow. And whether that's individually or as a team, we're going to be gritty and we'll do whatever it takes to deliver impactful outcomes um, in our pursuit of excellence. And that's that that level of persistence is just so important across the team. It, yeah. It, it's it's kind of interesting. I was just I was just at a new hire lunch. Uh, and I get the opportunity to sit down with our new hires and learn about them and learn their backgrounds and have a meal. And one of the things that really stood out to me as we were talking is it's just with 150 people, if you get 10% more out of each person, it's as if there are 15 more people at the company. It's really kind of an incredible thing to think about. Yeah. So each of these percentage points really starts to mean something now. And so having that like will to do whatever it takes and deliver impactful outcomes, that's, that's just absolutely critical to, to our culture. And then the last one is we're a team. Um, when I was in the military, uh, I went to a minesweeper and our crew was very much a team. Our captain took that team mentality and, and when we, I always loved that. I felt like it made us better. You know, it's not a family, it's a team. Yeah. And we're a team. Teams like to win. They work hard together. But what we say here is that relationships matter. They matter with each other. They matter with our customers. It means we ask questions. It means we listen to each other. Um, we synthesize. We learn. We empathize. We take action. Um, it's all in service of creating the best possible experience and solutions for our customers. And that's that's, that's what it awesome means to be a uh, team to go apart. I, I like that. And I've talked with organizations and and brought this up at NTMA events before. Um, you know, in in manufacturing, especially in the the small to medium size uh, machine shops that that you're exposed to and in previous worlds I was as well, uh, that concept of we're a family. And I always think of a family as a hard place to end up holding somebody accountable, right? Because uh, in a family, it's hard to, it's not like uh, the son is great at being able to hold dad or mom accountable, right? But it, when you function as a team, it's a lot easier to hold each other at any level of a team accountable for their performance. Is that kind of the, the direction you were going with that? Is, is the accountability piece a part of that team value? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think so accountability is a piece of it. The other thing is, I think you can't, one, you can't pick your family. So you sure. have family that you have, you don't get to pick your family. Here, where we have we run a very competitive, very exclusive process when we're interviewing people, and that's by nature a what a team does. I think the other thing is sometimes families can, you know, I, I have an Italian family, and as you can imagine, Italian families, it's kind of like us against the world, regardless of yep. like 
who it could be. And a team, we're, a team is in service of something. It's of our customers. So I think you can get this family mentality where you don't care about anybody else and you're just trying to take care of the family. Whereas we're a team playing for our customers. Everything we do is because our customers allow us to exist. I like that without a lot. Them, without them, it's like, it's, like, it's like professional NBA teams. They only get paid what they get paid. They only get to do what they get to do because fans show up and watch them because people turn on the TV. That's right. their customers. So they are a team playing for their customers. We only have the right and the opportunity to build this like really kick-ass company because our customers afford us that opportunity. Yeah. So I think it just it creates a culture of gratitude to those customers and a culture of loyalty to them above and beyond anything else. Yeah, I I, I would agree with that. Jason, you uh, before we get into you know your three uh, initiatives that you've implemented uh, that have positively affected your culture, I want to back up to to your history, to your background a little bit. Um, so, how did your time in the Navy uh, frame or shape the the three stages uh, of culture that that you've you're looking at right that brute force hell or high water militaristic uh to the process to scale intentional um to that flow uh natural state uh the laser guided execution how how did your background help you shape this this cultural journey that that paperless parts is on Yeah, I, I think really formed first in the early years of the company. And I, I think I'm starting to learn how it should inform our future years going forward. You know, it's funny. I never thought I would find myself referencing the Navy. I'm like an old man. I'm like, wow, when I was in the Navy, um, I'm sure my team gets tired of hearing about it. But there's, just, there's so many applicable things. We'll talk about this in the initiatives, but the, the military documents everything. We were talking about preventative maintenance the other day, and I'm trying to explain to our team. I'm like, look, you know, like on the ship, you fight a ship. So the ship yeah. and the quality and the state of readiness of this vessel is really the most important thing. And so in order to make sure that that ship is always in the best possible condition, we have a preventative maintenance system. And that system is where we're going through and we're turning every knob and we're starting every engine and we're making sure that, you know, the refrigerator's cooled to the right temperature and you name it, we're maintaining the ship in a fighting condition. But like mm -hmm. anything in any great program, there's entropy that creeps in and that entropy is taking shortcuts or maybe, you know, I didn't, didn't turn that knob, but I said I did. And you know, the military calls this gun decking. You gun deck your maintenance. You can go to captain's mast. But no matter what, you have to spot check. And, you know, the military calls okay. them spot check. Some people say inspect what you expect. Other people call it trust but verify. But as you're putting processes in place, every process, every team has a natural tendency to entropy, to go from a state of organization to a state of chaos. 
And Got the it. only way to prevent that is with constant, even pressure across the organization. And so I, I think that is something that the military built a system around very, very well. And while I think a lot of times we felt like it was very mundane and mm -hmm. very monotonous, it was still like absolutely critical to achieving success of the mission. So, yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, at each phase of this business, I've been able to look back at something that the military taught me or I experienced, and I've been able to find some level of applicability. It's, I couldn't be more thankful for the time that I had in the Navy. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, thanks for sharing that. So, so Jason, share with us, what, what are three things? I mean, you, you've created the, this matrix, the three core values matrix for every role and, and interpreted that to every role and, and level within the organization. What are three things outside of that that you've implemented at Paperless Parts that, that have helped you on this cultural journey that you've been on? Yeah, it's uh, let's start with when, when a company is really small, everyone kind of everyone knows everything. You know, we'd all eat lunch mm -hmm. together. We would all talk about every customer together. We would solve problems and group think. And, you know, the 10 of us knew everything about everything. And it was amazing. It was easy. You know, it made it, it, made it so that we're all on the same page. And we were able to run really fast as a small team. And there's, there's a reason why, you know, in the military, there you know, are SEAL teams, there's fire teams, and they keep them really small because you can move fast sure. and work together. So as, you, as we look at, paperless parts. And as we started to scale, started to realize that some of those motions were not possible anymore. And we were starting to find that we had silos of information in our business. And we, we weren't doing a very good job exposing that to new hires. We were watching people join the company and we're like, my gosh, this person is so smart and so capable, but why are they not getting up to speed well? And our Customers experience this all the time, Jim, and I'm sure you talk to manufacturers about it. But yep. what we found is we needed a way to effectively indoctrinate and onboard people into paperless parts. But in order for that to work, we needed to have a single centralized location for all of our information about the company. So what we did is we forced the, and this people didn't like this. So I'll just say it out loud. That was not a fun, Jason said, we have to do this, but <laughs> we pushed the organization into a program called Confluence and Confluence is effectively like a corporate hub. And that hub, we have a company page. We have pages about every single division at the company. We have, pictures of every person in there. We have different initiatives listed on each page of what each division is working on at any given time. When anytime we do product updates, we're putting them into Confluence. It is highly searchable. So it's very easy to find. Like if I was looking for what are paperless parts, core values, I can find it. We have a content calendar. We have an events calendar, but it's a central location. That's not a shared drive because shared drives are inherently messy and they're file driven and hard to navigate. This is a like 
a hosting content management platform that allows our company to get on the same page. That's so great. It took us, Jim, if I was starting a company again, seriously, I would, I would literally document decisions in Confluence every Friday. I probably would just like write, keep a running trail of like, why did we decide to go this direction? Why did we, the sky, the, the sky is now green. And like, like all these, you know, any, any of these little pivots that we made throughout the course of the company, you know, now we're trying to come back to and share those with new employees. So they sure. don't step in the same potholes that I, I've made every mistake under the sun. So it's like, <laughs> I can prevent people from, you know, making those idiotic mistakes like I made, it would be awesome and they'll go faster. But I need a way to 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 put up those, you know, the traffic cones and say, wait a second, there's a massive pothole. I already dove face first into this. It's not that deep. Like let's go somewhere yeah. else. And yeah. that's that is what Confluence does. So it took us about three months. We documented as much as we possibly could, created pages. We gave out awards to people for having the best pages and the most rich content. The whole company voted on it. It was, it, we made it a little bit more of a fun event, but it was sure. a lift to get there. And now, like anything you build, you have to maintain it. And when people are asking questions that you know the answers are in confluence, there's a big discipline and training piece. So we have to say to people, hey, did you check Confluence before you went and like raised your hand to the whole company and, and asked them for how you do this? Right. So that's, and that requires a lot of discipline because a lot of times it's easier and it's less friction to just tell a person an answer. Yep. And it makes you look a little bit kind of like an a-hole if you're going to, if you're like, no, why don't you go to our Confluence and type it into the search block? Um, <laughs> but you have to have to do it. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's a big change management, right? It's a mind shift uh, or mindset shift that, that you have to go through. So uh, before you go on with your other two, I just want to ask other than awards, how did you achieve this? Because that, I've, I've been in organizations that have launched new software that have launched CRM systems. Uh, I was with an organization uh, in the early 2000s before Salesforce took over the world uh, on the CRM side. And, and the organization I was with tried to implement Salesforce. And it, it ended up in the early years just being garbage in and garbage out uh, on that CRM side because the the change management wasn't done appropriately. How did you guys go through uh, that that change management? You said awards. You said you know it's taking discipline to direct people to to confluence. How else did you achieve that? You know, it's incredible listening to you talk about our customers adopting paperless parts. It it's you can do almost anything with software. The right. software is so incredible, and at the same time. If you don't adopt the software, it's garbage. Yep. And that's like that's like Salesforce. You know, like we've gone through so many iterations of cleaning up our Salesforce and making it better. And it's like a huge pain in the butt. <laughs> um, one of the, one, we had to have absolute conviction on the leadership team that this is what we were going to do. And that alignment. Before we, you know, we, we kind of, as a leadership team, we believe in the, the locker room, you know, and I, I don't know if that's a, you know, a good term or not, but <laughs> we, kinda, we, we, we think when we 
team together. We're going to hash it out. Oh, we come out, we present it to the company. We're a unified team. And when the decision is made, we make it and we stick to it. So I think what ends up happening in a lot of organizations when they try to implement new tools, new policies and procedures, they don't initially get that core group of execs on board with the change. And you get these detractors in the organization. We see it sometimes when we're implementing paperless parts with a customer where you know one or two people are 100% bought in and they're really excited. And then there's this one like curmudgeon type person <laughs> who's like, nope, like I'm not on board. I, I didn't like that. You know, it wasn't not invented here. Like right. we don't want to do that. It makes it very, very challenging to work through the change management. Um, the way we made it work, though, is we all got bought in and we said, regardless of the deficiencies, we're going to use it and we're going to use it to the fullest extent possible. And I think that's an important statement because software is never perfect. It's just not unless you sit there and it is far too expensive to do this. But unless you sit there and you build software internally for your own business, where you're like, I don't like the fact that this, you know, is red. I want it to be purple. I want to change the color. Well, you can do that if you go write your own software for your own business. And that seems really attractive. And it's also incredibly inefficient and incredibly expensive. Yeah. So just acknowledging, like one of the things I do with our our prospects before they close with us is I just remind them. I say, hey, look, you have a team of people here that truly care about your success and software is never done and it will never be perfect. So as long as you understand that and you are on board with that journey that we are about to go down, you can't let perfect be the enemy of really good enough to make your business successful. As long as we're aligned, we're going to sell you paperless parts. I love and it. I think that's been a really important conversation because you can, you can, you know, my mom used to always say, she's like, cut off your nose to spite your face. <laughs> and it's like, you know what? Like your, your people will get fixated on the inability to do one thing. Like with Confluence, it was like, well, this other software you can chat and tackle and, you know, like put in weird emojis. It's like, oh my gosh, guys, you're missing the whole point, which is documenting <laughs> our policies and procedures. Like it doesn't matter. Yeah, and yeah. we kind of had to just get everybody on the bus with that and then be highly, highly disciplined implementing it. So we would not allow objections to stop us. It was like, yep, yeah. too bad. Go make it work. Yep, yep. too bad. Uh, get it done. And that, that, forcing function, it's, it's actually quite incredible. We see this with a lot of private equity owned or more um, uh, more enterprise level machine shops. Like once they start to get into the 25 million to 50 million in revenue range, yep. play games. Like they adopt a solution, they adopt paperless parts and they sit down with their team and they're like, you're going to make this work and you're going to make it work really well. Sure. And they do it. And they get so successful so fast. It's amazing, Jim. It makes my head spin. <laughs> you, get, you get some of these smaller companies that are like analysis paralysis and they start to come up and it's like, guys, like, what are you waiting for? Let's just do this. Let's make it happen. 
Yeah. So I think that's a big piece of adopting any type of software solution. No, I, we, I agree. Uh, that that's big, and and thanks for sharing that with us. So what's what's number two? What's what's the second uh, big cultural initiative that you've implemented there? You know, we got really disciplined around who and how we were hiring people, and we mm -hmm. started to skate to where the puck was going to be rather than to where the puck is. Uh, I think that's a really important piece for a fast growing, evolving company because I think you can make a lot of hires where. You're trying to hire for where you are today, not where you're going to be in six months. And by the time someone gets ramped up, they're looking at you and they're like, wait a second, like I might not be the right person to do this job. And that's yeah. a, that's a big, it's not fair to them and it, it's not fair to the company, but I think it's a really critical piece of maturing is that how you evaluate and how you hire people. And, and I think, it's interesting, but I think it's easy to be short-sighted about hiring slightly better or slightly more well-paid people. The output from those people is tremendously different. Yeah. Uh, I remember I remember my co-founder, Jay Jacobs, talking about his experience at Rapid, and they paid better than any shop in the area. And... Jay never had a hard time hiring really awesome machinists. And so it's like, well, how do you get to 300 people? Like every single person in manufacturing is talking about skills gap, skills gap, skills gap. And Jay's like, we never had a skills gap. <laughs> like, we paid people what they deserve to be paid. And yeah. as a result, we got good people and we were able to charge customers more because we had this part of the market cornered and we had a good business strategy and that was it. And so yeah. I, I feel like that is a really important approach to how we scaled our business. I think that's, yeah. that's, that was a big initiative. Get, get the right people on the bus. Yeah, absolutely. You, you got to make sure you have the right people, not only for current business conditions, but for where you want to get the business to. Uh, I, I was talking just today with a, a client um, and he's, of course, struggling to find the right people, right? As a lot of companies are. And so we had a really deep conversation about where he wants the business to be, not not where they are necessarily are now and, and how to fill machinists and, and welder roles today. Um, but how does he want to, where does he want to get the business to in a year, in two years, in five years? And let's hire the machinists that, you would hire at that point. And it really helped him reframe uh, how he not only is writing his uh, job description and his job postings, but to your point, Jason, how he's looking at paying these people. Um, because if he, if he wants that world-class organization, he can't hire like he has historically because it hasn't gotten him to where he, it, to his goals. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. And I, you know, at our company, every employee has stock in the company. Cool. Because I think I like working with owners. People who own a piece of the company feel a heck of a lot more pride in what they're doing and what they're building. And, I, and, it's, that's, and it's not a hard thing to make your employees owners. It doesn't have to be a huge portion, but it should be meaningful 
for them when the business achieves success. Yep. Like that should, that should have a positive impact on them outside of a couple hundred bucks at Christmas time. <laughs> and I think a younger generation of people really long for that. They long for ownership. They, yeah. They've all been told this sexy story about how amazing entrepreneurship is and about you know how you can go change the world. And some of them choose to go down that path and others go to companies. But in the back of their mind, they're always thinking, well, how can I become an owner someday? Yep. And the reality is, you want to keep those people, you need to make them feel like and be compensated like owners. And, and that's yeah. a very new paradigm. You know, I think you're starting to see a lot of shops go down the path of like ESOPs. They're creating these employee stock ownership programs. And, and I think those are really, really progressive. You're starting to see ownership based on units, which creates profit share which allows owners to be a lot more transparent about the profitability of the company. I mean, I'm always amazed yep. when I go into shops and the, the shop is like, well, I would never want our employees to know what we're making on this job. They're not excited that the company's making more money. We post every deal we close in a public Slack channel for our company so we can all celebrate. Wow. I mean, it, I can't imagine people know what our margins are. Like it's, it's critical. It is. This is, the, this is the life. It's like, it's kind of like we're all on this lifeboat together, but we're not going to tell you what the lifeboat is made of. And, <laughs> or where the oar is. <laughs> yeah, it might be something. No, oh, we don't. Is it a five horsepower engine or a 50 horsepower <laughs> engine? Like everybody should be more excited with more horsepower. Right. But for some reason that, that is a, it's a different methodology. It was a, it was an opaque approach to running business. Um, and I, I don't know that that works in today's environment. I don't think it does. And I think that's part of, you know, A, why uh, conversations like this one are so important um, for people to hear. Um, but I think that's partly why we've seen that skills gap or workforce gap opportunity gap that that the industry as a whole may have uh jay jay may not have had that problem but it sounds like the way he ran rapid was much more progressive much more forward looking and, and future focused um and i think that there's a lot of mindset in manufacturing that is along the lines of, I've been doing this for 50 years this way. Uh, it hasn't failed me yet. We've always had this workforce problem. Uh, we'll continue to have it. So we're gonna continue doing it the way that we've always done it. You know, it's it's really interesting, Jim. I, I, when I, so I got to the ship, I got to this minesweeper and the minesweepers were like 1980s, early 90s vessels. And so by the time I got to the ship, the thing was almost 30 years old. Wow. And I remember this master chief, Garen, he sat me down and he told me this story about monkeys. And I'm like, what is this guy talking about? Like monkeys? Like what? And he, he, I'm sitting in the chief's mess with him and he said, like, he said, look, he said, they ran this experiment where they took all these monkeys and they put them in a room, in a cage. They put a ladder and they put a banana at the top of this ladder and they created these 
fire hoses around the edges of this room. And anytime one of the monkeys would try to climb the ladder, we'd blast them with the fire hose. And eventually, none of the monkeys tried to climb the ladder. So they all learned. They learned yeah. that climbing the ladder, regardless of what the reward was, they were going to get blasted with the fire hose. And then he said, what they did is they took one of the six monkeys out. And they put a new monkey in. And the second that new monkey in the ladder, all of the existing monkeys that had been blasted with fire hoses basically tackle this monkey and, like, you know, beat the crap out of this monkey. <laughs> so that monkey learns the hard way not to, not to climb the fire hose. Or, excuse me, not to climb the ladder. Right. So then what they do is they go and they turn the fire hoses off and they take them away. And they start to, one by one, change out each of the monkeys to a point of where there's not a single monkey that has ever been sprayed with a fire hose, but they've all been beaten up when they've tried to climb the ladder to get the banana. And they actually have no idea why. Interesting. And said, Look, this is the story of it's always been done this way. You don't know why we don't climb the ladder to get the banana. And the reality is today, there is absolutely no reason why you shouldn't go climb the ladder to get the banana. But because we've always done it this way, I'm going to punch you in the mouth if you go try to do something different than the way we've always done it. And that, he looked at me and he said, you need to climb the ladder here. Do not wow. let someone tell you ever that it's because we've always done it this way. He's like, we need to continue to evolve and improve the way we do things. And that stuck with me my whole life because you can't get in that methodology of we've always done it this way because you lose the why and it becomes yeah. a very unintentional, like we are intentional, right? It becomes a really unintentional way of doing things. At the same time, as I've looked at the manufacturing industry, I've realized that manufacturers solve problems with process. Yep. What our customers do is incredibly hard. They make parts that go into medical devices, into rocket engines, into tractors and automobiles. I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. They power the whole world, in my opinion. Absolutely. And so that is a super challenging prospect. Like, how am I going to go repeatedly produce something a thousand, a million times, whatever it is? Well, they do it by putting process in place. And that process is really challenging to get right. So once they get it right, they have this natural inclination to never want to change because mm. it can kill their business. God forbid we change the process. Yeah. And that that is baked into the DNA of so many of our customers. And what I realize is tech companies, we're software companies, we solve problems with software. We're like, oh, you got a problem here? Like, I bet there's a software solution created to solve that problem. <laughs> and that makes us very different than the way our customers solve problems, which is with process. So we just have to be very empathetic to understand that's how our customers think. And we need to help them evolve their processes with our software. And it's not a, a, a replacing or a rip and change. It's very much an evolution together. 
um, and a crossing of the chasm that we have to that we have to take with these customers. So that's you know uh, long long answer to your question, but that's 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 how I think about it. No, I, I and I love the the story of the monkeys. I I've not heard that in relation to that. That's all. That's how it's always been done. Comment. Um, but that's a powerful story, and I, and I think that uh, I hope people who are listening find it as uh, as uh, insightful as as I did. Uh, so so wrapping up your three things, Jason. What what's your third thing that you've implemented at Paperless Parts? Yeah, I I think it a lot of it comes. It's very very simple actually. Um, my mom always said communication is the key to successful relationships. And I think she meant in relation to um, like having a wife and having a family you know, communication is key, but I find it's exact same thing is true with our customers and with our team. And as you get bigger and bigger, communication becomes harder and harder. And so one of the things that we do here and that I've implemented on our executive team is at the beginning of every week on Sunday night, I send our leadership team my top five priorities for the week. Wow. And it's not a way for me to put people on blast. It's not a way for, you know, me to like passive aggressively signal that something should be their priorities, but it's just a way for me to communicate that these are the top five things that I'm going to be thinking about and focusing on this week. And what that does is it allows for me to communicate to my team how I'm thinking about prioritizing my week. They all respond with their top five. Now, what this does is not only does it allow us to align. So if I see something and I'm like, hey, you know, I really think your priority should be shifted around a little bit or hey, I don't know why this isn't your priority for this week. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Or, mm -hmm. hey, you know, maybe the two of you should be talking because it seems like your priorities are the same. It just exposes those opportunities for alignment. It also helps with accountability because I'm just like you said, if you put it out on LinkedIn, it's like, oh, crap, <laughs> I'm going to have to do this now. Like I, you know, I told everybody I was going to lose 10 pounds. Like I have to go do it or I'm a schmuck. Right. Well, yep. It's like same thing true like I'm, I'm sending it out to all my you know my executive leaders that i i you know they i want them to respect me and they want that same respect and so we you know we put it out that this is what we're going to do i think the last thing it does is it allows them to communicate down to their teams what the priorities are for the company and it just drives a sense of alignment across the whole organization and that that we've been doing that now for about a month, and I, I think it has been really, really helpful in getting people on the exact same page. Yeah, absolutely. And and so what what's the next step in that? I mean, uh, you're you're progressive. You're you're thinking ahead. You're looking towards the future. Uh, are are you currently? cascading KPIs and other company metrics, or, or is that maybe what's next? Uh, how, how, does, how do you expand on this concept of cascading messaging uh, on priorities, on KPIs, whatever is next? Uh, how do you, what's the next step in it? We, we have 
KPIs across the organization right now. I think the next step for us is taking this to um, a cadence and an operational cadence. And we've got a little bit of one right now, but it's, it's formalizing the way we do monthly business reviews, quarterly business reviews, prep for board meetings, how those meetings are really effective, how we disseminate information from each of those meetings. You know, I think I think companies can get into this rhythm where, you know, you're sitting in a monthly business review and it's like, yawn, what am I listening to? This is boring. Like, I know all this already. Why are we talking about it? And it eats up one day a month. And that's brutal. You know, you're losing 5% mm-hmm. of your, your business days in a month because you're spending a day regurgitating information everybody already knows. So sure. we're, we're working really working really hard to make that a very productive short session where there's a a well thought out read ahead. Everyone's on the same page with where the company is. And and the goal of that MBR monthly business review is to reflect how we do for the month and what immediate changes do we need to make or problems do we need to solve not as maybe a whole unit, but as tiger teams right now so that next month goes better or so that we make more progress towards our goals. And if those things That's are great. already being worked, great. We don't need to worry about it. And if they're not being worked, well, great. We got to spin up a tiger team and we got to go make it happen. And yeah. so that that's how we're evolving almost like a, an upstream cadence of, you know, we do this every single week. We got to have a monthly cadence, then we got to have a quarterly cadence, and then we have our annual kickoff. And building this corporate organizational operational cadence, I think, is is going to be a really important thing to um, taking a larger company and, and really moving forward in a cohesive way. I like it. I like it a lot. So, Jason, the the last thing I'm I'm going to ask you here is. Paperless Parts is is an innovative product in itself, um, and there's a huge intersection between healthy company culture and having the right tools, the right technology uh, in a, a shop environment to get the job done. So tell us real quick about Paperless Parts and, and how does your product help manufacturers create that or or promote a healthier culture internally you were talking about you know their process driven and and software usually sometimes isn't talk to us about how you guys uh and, and machine shops manufacturers adopting paperless parts can can help with a cultural shift for them yeah absolutely um so paperless parts is designed to be a communication and collaboration tool for manufacturers. And we really focus in the front office on quoting and estimating, tracking analytics. Um, the, the, the platform itself, like you and I have used Salesforce before, paperless mm-hmm. parts is much more focused on CNC machining and sheet metal fabrication, but it has the same tenants as like a Salesforce would in order to be able to track your opportunities when you send quotes, follow up on them, communicate with customers. And all that is wrapped around a 
um, technical data analysis tool. So we're analyzing 3D models and PDFs and we're surfacing as much information as we possibly can to try to automate steps in the quoting and estimating process. And wow. so the, the solution though, and, and we talk culturally, a lot of times estimating, when we go into a shop, estimating is a little bit of a dark art. There's mm -hmm. either the owner does it or one or two people are trusted to do it. it a lot of people don't really know how they come up with prices. There's, <laughs> it's very opaque. You know, there, there's a lot of a gut feel. You know, I remember the first, the first estimator I watched quote a part back in the day. This is going back like seven years now. Okay. Um, I remember sitting down with them and we were looking at a part and I'm like, all right, so how would you price this part? And he goes, this was a guy from Boston. He's, he goes, that's an $850 pot. And I'm like, what? I'm like, what did you say? And he's like, it's, it's $850. And I'm like, all right. Well, like, I'm like, how do you, how'd you come up with that? He's like, I just know that's $850. And I'm exactly. like, I'm like, okay. Um, like, well, how would I come up with that if you weren't here? Yep. And he's like, you'll learn. You'll learn over, you, you know, it'll take you a few years. You'll get it. You'll, you'll just know. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. I'm like, so I'm never going to be able to do this in any sort of reasonable time. Right. And we're going to go out of business if yep. well, we work together. This is great. If he got hit by a bus, uh, all of that tribal knowledge goes right out the door. It's so true. It is so true. And so a lot of implementing paperless parts is a little bit like pulling teeth. We're trying to get these estimators that understand so much about the business to articulate what they're seeing in the geometry of the parts and what they're seeing in the technical data that can help build some guardrails around the estimating process. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I always find so intriguing is, you know, we, we will start working with a shop and there's a little bit of defensiveness. And then and then they're like, well, wait a second. You know, you, this thing can't create an accurate cycle time for my machine with the tools that I don't even know which ones I'm going to use yet. And I'm like, wait a second. You're <laughs> just telling me that the software is never going to do anything. And now you want it to do everything that you do. And it's this like really interesting mental shift. Yeah. And I think the thing that where it really starts to click is people realize one, software is not perfect, but two, if you think about the shop floor and how companies have evolved on the shop floor, it's a perfect analogy for paperless parts because you don't see a lot of shops using manual machines that are still in business today. Right. So you adopted CNC machines. It doesn't mean that you didn't have to machine right you got you got you had to program it for every part you had to program it but you still want to use cnc machines because it's a better tool for the job same thing is true right you know you got putting coolant through the spindle you're buying better cutting tools you, you're you're out there you're doing this because you want to use the best tools for each job paperless yeah. parts is no different it is the best tool for your front office team and for communication out onto your shop floor. 
Like we bridge that gap between what is being thought about in estimating to when a part gets engineered. And we make sure that there is communication between those two parties. And that that is a really, really powerful outcome when shops lean into it. Absolutely. And that, that, that's, that's the message that I always try to share with our customers. You pick the best tools for every job out on the shop. Your team that is winning work, every job starts with a quote. So your team that is out there doing the tip of the spear work, they deserve the best tools too. Absolutely. That's, that's so, a great point. That's, that's where we they don't use subpar end mills. Why would they uh, use a subpar estimating process, right? Yeah, you're going to pick the best coolant, the best fixtures. You're picking the best, the best cam programs. You're you're out there trying to, you know, you're walking around IMTS, sticking your head in every machine <laughs> to try to figure out what's going to be the best machine for you. You know, which pallets am I going to put on? What bar loader? I mean, everything. You scrutinize your shop floor because it's your baby. And and the reality is, Jim, it's because calculating return on investment is so much easier when you buy a machine. It's much more familiar. Manufacturers understand this tool is going to cut X amount, more chips, faster, better, you know, more rigid. So we're not going to have the chatter like they, they understand it. So in their brain the ROI for buying that better tool on the shop floor is very simple. Most manufacturers have never changed their quoting process. Yeah. I was talking to a shop yesterday. They're using a spreadsheet they created in 1999. Whew. I mean, come on. I, I mean, I didn't even listen. I mean, it's crazy to think about. They're using the same pricing methodology for 20 something wow. years. So this is yeah. not a muscle where they have any sense of what ROI is even possible. So part of our sales process and part of our implementation process is really breaking down the quoting process end to end. Where do you get your RFQs from? Where do you save the files? Is that secure? How are you communicating with your team and your outside vendors? Is that secure? How are you configuring all this information. It takes like 180 clicks inside of most ERP systems to draft a quote. It's crazy, but they don't even know about that. Context switching, it's opening windows, closing windows, it's typing in cells. Like that's just, that has just become what they're used to. And you know, when you're, when you live with a pain for a very long period of time, it starts to become part of your everyday life. And until yep. someone really takes that pain away from you and you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh my God, my back doesn't hurt anymore. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like, be, it's like man discovers fire for the first time. Like it's a whole new feeling, but it takes a lot of buy-in and a lot of commitment to enhancing and improving and wanting to grow. And that's, that's what we do. And as long as customers understand that We've hired a whole team of people and we have their back going through this process. As long as they know that and they lean on us, we're going to get them successful. And with over 500 customers, we've done this enough times now where we know how to make shops successful with our products. That's great. I'm going to take some of those uh, 
I'm going to take some of the notes I took uh, listening to this last part here and implement them for myself because that's that's one of the hardest things that I've found uh, with what my company does, right? I don't make parts. Uh, I don't make a tool that can help chips fly faster. Uh, I help companies with their people strategies. I help them uh, get alignment and a cultural shift and employee engagement. And just like you said, with, with paperless parts, it's hard for them to calculate the ROI of people strategies. Right. And so thanks for the notes. I, I'm going to implement some of these in my own business. So I appreciate that, Jason. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I know I drone on here. I no, this has been great. Appreciate the opportunity to share it with you and, and your, your listeners and, you know, hopefully the time that people take to listen to this, they at least get one one or two little nuggets out of it that that give them an idea for how they can improve their business or a process that they're trying to enhance. That's that's a goal. That's a goal, my friend. Uh, well, guys, everybody, that's a wrap for today's episode of the Manufacturing Culture Podcast. A huge thank you to our guest, Jason Ray, for sharing his incredible cultural journey with us and giving a glimpse into the exciting innovations happening over at Paperless Parts. His vision for the future, passion for innovation, and commitment to building a positive company culture is truly inspiring to, to everybody, and I hope you all feel the same. If you have any questions for Jason or any comments about the episode, please feel free to reach out to us at manufacturingculturepodcast.com. Join us again next time for a, another exciting episode of Manufacturing Culture Podcast, where we'll continue to explore the company cultures in the world of manufacturing. Until then, have a great day and keep making things. Mm -hmm.